Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. In case you're hearing some shouts in the background and some screams in the background, that's not an exorcism. It's just the drama group uh, practicing. Uh, so excuse the background noise. So this is the last in our challenge uh, on prayer. And so far, if you've been with us from the start, we've seen uh, or talked about prayers of blessing, prayers of unity, prayers of adoration, confession, forgiveness, thanksgiving, supplication. And now in this last in our series, we'll be looking at prayers of protection, um, basically prayers around spiritual warfare. And if you've been with us from the start, you know that we've loosely used uh, the Lord's Prayer as the template for uh, all of these different sorts of prayer. And so for this one, looking at spiritual warfare, we'll look at the last petition in the Lord's Prayer, which is, lead us not into temptation, uh, but deliver us from evil. So being a scientist, I do things logically. In the first half of this talk, we'll look at the first half of the verse. In the second half of the talk, we'll look at the second half uh, of the verse. I don't know why I needed to say that, but there you go. So first half of the verse, lead us not into temptation. If you think about it, it's um, an, a bit unusual because we're praying to God and it sounds like we're asking God not to lead us into temptation, which of course doesn't make sense. It can't be God who leads us into temptation. And in fact, the scriptures tell us otherwise. In James 1, it says, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So how do we make sense of this? Um, what are we actually saying when Jesus um, tells us to pray in this way? And so um, I think it's instructive to look at Luke 4, which is the temptations in the desert. Uh, and Ruth kindly read that out just, before, just a moment ago. That passage has been interpreted by the great theologians of the church as basically saying that temptation has three sources. It is basically the world, the flesh, or the devil. The temptation where the devil um, tempts Jesus to uh, throw himself uh, off the, the temple roof is basically the temptation to do something amazing in the eyes of the world. The temptation where the devil uh, tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread is basically the flesh wanting to look after the desires and the needs of the body. Um, and the last one where the devil um, says, worship me, and in exchange, I'll give you power over all these kingdoms, is basically um, direct temptation from the devil. So from that passage, the great theologians of the church and the understanding of the church has been that temptation actually comes from the world, the flesh, or the devil. Basically, we recognize uh, that we live in a fallen world and bad things happen. Sometimes it's our own fallen nature and our own desires uh, that lead to bad things happening. And sometimes it is a direct spiritual attack. And uh, making the right diagnosis is important because um, we could be praying against uh, a demon when actually God wants us to address uh, our own fallen desires or the choices that we've made in, in, in our lives. So making the right diagnosis is, is the first step in countering uh, temptation. So lead us not into temptation is basically recognizing, help us not to fall into the hands of the world, the flesh, and, and the devil. But 
is God not stronger than the world, the flesh, and the devil? Why, why would he let those things happen, um, knowing that they, they hurt us? So who is ultimately responsible for temptation? Is God not some, at least partly responsible if he lets these things happen? And this is where I think we get to my favorite book in the Bible, the book of Job. And if um, many of you know it, it starts out with this amazing scene where we are taken into the throne room of God. God is there in all his glory with all the angels around him. um, And the devil is also there uh, with them. Um, And the conversation comes around to Job and how pleased God is with him. And uh, Satan basically lives up to his name as the accuser. Uh, And he accuses uh, Job and he says to God, Job only serves you because you bless him. Uh, And if you test him, you'll see what he's really made of. And what we see that is that it's not God's idea to tempt Job. It's Satan's idea. But Satan has to ask permission from God. And in fact, what God is, although he allows it, he sets limits. He constrains the work of the devil. And so I think what that passage tells us is that although God does not initiate um, uh, temptation, what he actually does is to limit and constrain uh, the work of the devil in that area. And that's a theme that comes out throughout Scripture, that um, in fact the devil is the root of temptation and, and that God is actually constraining him. We see that again, for example, in the New Testament before the crucifixion, when uh, Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Again, we see there that the devil has to ask uh, permission um, for temptation to occur. So at this point, you may be thinking, well, that's kind of a nitpicky distinction, because if God allows it, isn't he at least partly responsible again? That doesn't let God off the hook um, with temptation. And so now we have to go to the second bit of that verse, which is understanding what temptation actually means. So the Greek word is uh, parasmos, and that one Greek word is variously translated in different ways throughout uh, the English Bible. Sometimes it's translated test, sometimes it's translated trial, and sometimes it's translated temptation. And if you go to the actual Greek word, the concordance actually says it's quite a neutral word. It, it basically means a test or experiment. And if you think about it, an experiment is neither positive nor negative. It just is. An experiment tells you what something is made of. For example, when you do an assay or a test of a substance, it reveals what is already there, but it's not inherently either good or bad in itself. And so what the, the, the other thing that the concordance says is that the meaning of that um, test, depend, of that word, depends on the context. And often it can mean multiple, uh, it can have all of those aspects in the one um, sentence and in the one context. So what that tells us is that the word parasmos, the, the neutral word test, holds when it, within it the potential that this is a trial in which we succeed or it's a temptation in which we fail. The word itself is neutral, but it captures that that test can end in two different ways. And everything that we have in Scripture tells us God allows it, hoping that we will get through it 
and um, be stronger because of it, whereas the devil initiates it, hoping that we will uh, be tempted and fail in it. And, and this is what we see in James 1. We read, Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. What we see clearly here is that God allows the temptation to happen, the test to happen, hoping that we will get through it and develop perseverance and maturity through it. Whereas the devil initiates it because he's hoping that we will, fa- we will tempt it and, be f- and, and fail uh, in it. And I think that's um, pretty much obvious for any of us who have gone through difficult times, whether it be in a marriage, in a relationship, in families. Um, we realize that it is only through the difficult times that we grow. Um, when things are easy, those aren't the occasions when we grow or mature or uh, gain wisdom, uh, if you will. So this really gives us that sense that, that the trials are allowed to happen, um, but that God is hoping we'll get through it stronger, whereas the devil is hoping we will we'll, uh, not get through it uh, and fail. And again, we, we see this um, kind of dynamic to, to understand how these come together it's always instructive to to look at the example of Jesus. If we look at how Jesus was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, we we realize that times of trial are not easy. So you could say, well, if we go by what James says, that we should be joyful uh, because of the trials, then why not seek them out? If we're going to grow through them, bring them on. Let's face more trials. But it's important to realize God is not sadistic. He doesn't put us through trials uh, if we don't need them, uh, to, if we don't need to go through them. Um, but if we do need to go through them, then he will strengthen us um, and, uh, and, and be with us. So let's look at the example of Jesus. In Gethsemane, uh, just before the crucifixion, we read, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So what he's saying there is, if I don't have to go through this trial, let it pass from me. But if I do have to go through it, then strengthen me to to get through this. Um, And Jesus realizes that times of trial are not easy. They're stressful. Uh, And in fact, uh, when scripture says, being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Um, Just as a bit of medical trivia, that's actually a medical condition uh, called hematohydrosis. Uh, And there's many case reports throughout history uh, of this. And it it happens when you are so stressed and your levels of adrenaline in your body are so high that the small blood vessels next to the uh, sweat glands actually burst. And so you end up sweating blood. So this gives us um, a a deep understanding of the amount of stress that Jesus was under. Um, And faced with that stress, like we are, he says, Lord, if I don't have to go through this, pray that I, I, I wouldn't, but that if I have to go through it, then be with me. Now, the scriptures tell us that an angel helped Jesus during that time, and because Jesus has gone through it, he is now able to help us when we go through those times. 
In Hebrews 2, we read, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. So how, how can we bring all this together? How can we understand this first line of lead us not into temptation? And I think the best synthesis of how to understand that line is 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It reads, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I think that's incredibly comforting to know that um, no temptation has, will, will come upon us except what's common to man, and he won't test us, if you will. There's that word parasmos, um, beyond what we can bear. The promise is when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out. Now, I think when we read that verse, we stop at that bit of the, uh, of the passage, and, and we often pray to God, help me find a way around this. Help me to avoid this time of trial. But the verse goes on. It says, provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. And I think that's the key. Sometimes we pray, God, make a way around it so I, don't have to, I can avoid this and not have to go through it. But Scripture is telling us sometimes the way that he makes for us is to go through it and to stand up under it. Uh, and that's a really important distinction. So I think that tells us when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we're praying like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we don't have to go through these difficult times, then spare us. But if we do have to go through, then let us take your way, which is to, to get to the other side with your help, knowing that you're beside us, and that we get through it in a way that grows us and matures us and grows perseverance and builds your kingdom. So I hope that makes sense of the first half uh, of that uh, verse. Then we get to the second half, uh, but deliver us from evil. And again, at first glance, that sounds very passive. It's like asking God, um, do the fighting for us and, um, you know, beam us out of here, Scotty. Um, but if we think about it, that's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. Um, because sometimes we're called to flee and sometimes we're called to stand and fight. So, for example, 1 Corinthians 6 says flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2 says flee from the evil desires of youth. But other times in Scripture, we're called to stand and resist. So James 4 says, resist the devil and he will free, flee from you. Ephesians 6, that, that passage, famous passage about putting on the armor of God, says put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand your ground. Now that's an interesting word there, stand, because the Greek is katergozomai. Don't know if I'm saying that properly or not. But that is a military term that actually is a defensive term. It means holding and strengthening the ground that has already been won. So that passage is actually saying when we put on the armor of God, we are defending ground that Jesus has already won for us. So sometimes we're called to flee. Sometimes we're called to stand and resist. How do we know which one to do? Obviously, we need the leading of the Holy Spirit uh, to, to know what God is calling us to at any one point in time. But again, I think looking at the example of Jesus is the most instructive thing. So let's go back to the passage that Ruth led, uh, read about the temptations of Jesus in the desert. We see that um, the temptation to jump from the temple, which we said is the world, the, the, 
uh, the, the temptation to uh, engage in worldly glory. Um, the turning food, to, turning the stones into bread was the flesh, looking after the needs of the body, the desires of the body, and basically looking after the self. And the um, idea of worshipping the devil so as to gain power uh, over the kingdoms of the world uh, is, is essentially the, the promise, the temptation of power. So it's interesting to look at, at these tactics because what we see is that the devil is actually offering what isn't his. Glory and power and fulfillment is not what the devil actually offers. He's offering a counterfeit uh, of those things. They look like um, the things that Jesus was meant to do. We know that he was meant to ultimately have power and glory and establish uh, the kingdom. And really what the devil is doing here is tempting Jesus to take a shortcut because Jesus was meant, as I just said, to, to um, achieve power and glory, but to do it through the way of the cross. The devil is tempting here, him here in the desert long before that and saying there is another way. You don't have to go through the difficulty. There is a way out of this where you can have reach these things without taking the difficult road. And uh, Jesus obviously counters this, um, knowing that this is the way that uh, his father has made for him and that he has to go through that way to get the genuine um, articles of uh, power and glory and establishing the kingdom in the right way. So again, let's see what, how Jesus's response to the devil sets a precedent for us uh, in how to deal with the devil. So I think the first lesson that Jesus teaches us in this, and this is important because Jesus could easily, Jesus had the power to simply say to the devil, be gone, just go away. But instead, what we see is that each time he is tempted, each of those three occasions, he starts out by responding, it is written. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy. So, of course, in his divine self, God knows the, um, Jesus knows the Old Testament inside and out. But in his human self, he has memorized scripture uh, and he can uh, he knows it. It is on his lips, on his mind, on his heart. And this is what he uses to speak to the devil. And I think that is really significant because he is setting an example for us for how to deal with uh, temptation. We see this in Ephesians 6, again, that passage about the armor of God. Um, in the traditional translations, it's the only item in the armor of God that is an offensive weapon. It's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But I like this translation from the message because even though we could focus on each item in the armor of God and do a whole challenge uh, on it over a number of weeks, um, I think the image works as, as a global image as well. And this is what comes through in this translation. The message reads, this is no afternoon athletic contest that we'll walk away from and forget about in a couple of hours. This is four keeps, a life or death fight to the finish against the devil and all his angels. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. You'll need them throughout your life. And this is the crux of the passage. God's word is an indispensable weapon. In the same way, prayer is essential in this ongoing warfare. So really, the, this image of Jesus in the desert and, and the passage here on the armor of God in Ephesians 6 is telling us the word of God is really our weapon 
in, um, in spiritual warfare. And I think it's interesting to look too that Jesus wins this battle against the devil, not only in that moment in the desert, but in we need to look and see what laid the foundation for that victory. I don't know about you, but I often wonder why don't we have more stories in the Bible about um, Jesus as a child and, and Jesus growing up. If you remember, the only story we ever get is the one uh, when Jesus is about 12 or 13 years old and his uh, father and mother, Joseph and Mary, take him to the uh, temple for the Passover feast and they head back home and they're a day out before they realize that Jesus has been left behind, which is very reassuring as a, as a parent uh, that we all make mistakes. Um, but the key thing is that Jesus is back in the temple debating and arguing and learning uh, from the rabbis and the teachers of the law. And I think that one anecdote is given to us to, to tell us how important it is to uh, be steeped in the word and to have time in the word. So Jesus in his human self, obviously um, Joseph and Mary brought him up uh, in, in the ways of Judaism. And even as a child, he was passionate about spending time in the word. And if we are going to have our hearts and minds shaped that way, then we have to find time um, to spend in the Word. And I think this is probably one of the biggest spiritual battles of our day. Just the fact that we live a life that is so distracted uh, from the Word. Um, I think, um, you know, when we look at social media between Facebook and Twitter and TikTok and Instagram, all of these things, there, the, the way the, the business model, if you will, is to steal our attention and our time so that they can sell it on to advertisers uh, who can then use it to uh, get us to buy stuff. And I'm not saying that those platforms are of the devil, but I'm saying if we are not careful, um, we will be distracted uh, from spending time in the Word. Because they are such good operators, they make it very easy. That's why it's so easy to just get on Twitter or Facebook and, and check things. And before you know it, you've spent two or three hours there. So unless we are deliberate and conscious in um, not doing that, uh, it steals time away from um, the time that we could spend in the Word. And we can become so um, absorbed in the ethos of the world that our hearts and minds are no longer shaped uh, by the word. Um, I, I can't help feeling the images that God gives us in the church and in the word is a wedding feast. And in the Middle East, the wedding feast was something that went on for days and days and you sat there and you were present. The image that he gives us is not a snack bar. It's not a sushi bar. You know, I think nowadays we take the word of God like we take a snack, uh, a takeaway snack. We don't spend time in it. So I think this first lesson from Jesus is to be steeped in the word and to make sure we have time in the word. The second lesson we get from Jesus is that the battlefield is the mind. Um, the, uh, the devil tempts Jesus by putting doubts in his mind about what's the best way to get to his objective. And we see that with Adam and Eve. The devil puts a doubt in their mind about uh, whether God really cares for, for, for them or uh, what's the, the, the truth that God had spoken to them. 
Uh, and that's why in 2 Corinthians, Paul warns us, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The way the enemy tries to get to us is through our minds and to blind our minds. And that's why Paul appeals to us in Romans 12, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I think it's interesting there, isn't it, to look at test, that as long as our minds are not shaped by the gospel, we are the ones undergoing the testing. But if our minds are conformed to the gospel, then we are the ones doing the testing. And that is a powerful thing. If our minds and hearts can be so shaped by the the truth of God's word, that makes us a powerful weapon. We read in 2 Corinthians, the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. If we can be so steeped in the word of God that it shapes our hearts and minds, our desires, our feelings, our emotions, then that is a powerful thing. And I I put this picture up of little chicks being fed because what it tells us is that we can only go so long on having other people uh, pre-digest the word of God and feed it to us. So it's always good to read books and to listen to teaching and to listen to podcasts. But at some point, we've got to fly the nest and go to God's word, go to the primary source ourselves. There is no substitute. We cannot mature uh, or grow in, in wisdom if we do not spend time in the word ourselves. So it's good to listen to teachings like this, to listen to podcasts, to, to read books, but where other people interpret the word for us, but ultimately we have to go to the word and grapple with it uh, ourselves. And then I think the last lesson uh, we get from Jesus is uh, in in this episode uh, of the temptations in the desert is that everything uh, is spiritual. Uh, That same passage in Ephesians 6 from the armor of God uh, reads, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What that is saying is although we are here on this earth doing things in the physical realm, interacting with, with each other on the physical realm, what we do in this world has ramifications in the spiritual world. We see that, for example, when Jesus sends out the 72 to teach, to preach, and to heal. What they're doing is walking around, eating with people, talking to people, teaching people. But while they're doing that, that has implications in what's happening in the spiritual realm. That's why Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning uh, from heaven. And I think it's really important for us to understand that spiritual dimension of this earthly life. If we miss that, then we become as Uh, It says in Ephesians 4, infants who are tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful schemings. If we live our lives without an understanding of that spiritual realm, then we're basically just condemned to stumble through life without really understanding what it's about. Um, I put the picture of J.I. Packer up there because he has this beautiful passage in his classic book, Knowing God. And I'll just read this little bit because it 
encapsulates this point perfectly. He says, knowing God is crucially important for the living of our lives. Just as it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square, and leave him, as one who knew nothing of English or England, to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God whose world it is and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who do not know God. Disregarding the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. So without understanding that spiritual dimension, that's kind of what we're condemned to. And so I guess the challenge for each of us is to figure out what is the spiritual dimension to where God has placed us. So none of us are where we are um, by accident. God has a purpose and a particular uh, role for us to play in the spiritual battle that is going on. So just to help you flesh that out, I'll share, I guess, what was coming to me as I was putting this together. So some of you know, um, I, I work at the John Hunter Hospital. I also teach at the university. But in the last six months, I've also gotten a, a role as assistant dean for research in the faculty of health. And in that role, I basically am involved in administration. But it means that I often um, am asked to mediate between um, people who are in disagreement. So the university is full of bright, intelligent um, thoughtful people, but people being people, sometimes uh, they disagree, uh, and uh, I have to mediate. Uh, and so it was really interesting that um, in this role, I was hearing things that made me think twice about people. So you hear about a disagreement and you think, oh, I didn't know that about that person. I didn't think they were like that. Oh, maybe my trust has been misplaced, or maybe I won't work with them again. And I really caught myself because I realized that is sowing this, that is the enemy sowing the seed of disunity and disharmony. I think it is very telling that the last prayer that Jesus prayed with the disciples, at least in John's gospel before the crucifixion, was, uh, Father, let them be one as we are one. And he prayed for unity because the work of the devil is really to set people against each other and to... Um, to sow this harmony, really. So what I felt God telling me in this role was that there was a spiritual dimension to my work as an administrator, and that if I could get, get people to work together, to pull together in the same direction, to do something useful, to find something in health that could help others, that is building the kingdom. That is actually, as C.S. Lewis puts it, an act of sabotage for the kingdom of the devil and an act that builds up the kingdom of God. And so I think the challenge here is to live our daily lives conscious that what we do in this world has spiritual ramifications. And I think the um, challenge for you will be to find what is God calling you? What are those spiritual ramifications to where God has you in your daily life? So when we pray that second half of the verse, deliver us from evil, we're actually praying like Jesus did in the wilderness. We are praying, Lord, let our hearts and minds be so steeped in your truth that that truth informs what we do. And that when the devil attacks, 
we are hanging on to that truth and um, it guides us. So the, the temptation now is to do my usual professor wrap-up and do the summary and dot points, but the, the difference is that here it, it is not just knowledge. I think Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer so that we can pray like him. We should be able to pray in our own words. And so the challenge that I want to leave you with is if you've understood this last petition as Jesus meant it, you should be able to pray it in your own words and for your own circumstances out of your own uh, heart and your own situation. So what I've done is just put it in my own words uh, to give you an example. Uh, and we'll hear Ruth again um, praying that in a way that is meditative. And you'll have a chance to kind of just think through the truths that we've covered here. And um, I'll leave it with you to come up with your own version in your own words for that last petition that Jesus taught us.